Good morning. Great to be with you this morning. Thanks, team. Love that new song. Who enjoyed that? Stuck in my head. All right, if you've got your Bibles, let me tell you where to go. John chapter 9 is where we're going to be in a moment's time. But we are three weeks into this idea on disciple. Disciple. Um, we've been talking about the Great Commission. We've been talking about uh, some, of the, some of the alarming stats or trends in the Australian church, in Australian Christianity, where we're not seeing people come to faith. We're not seeing people... Um, you know, step into a new relationship with Jesus and, and sort of bring people alongside, make disciples of their own. Um, and it's not your fault, it's not my fault, it's just sort of the, what's happening in the, in the Australian church around us and, and we're a part of that. Um, and what we might do to sort of change our thinking around that and to not settle for some of these trends. And so we've looked at some of the, the stats of um, uh, monthly attendance, Um, from the 50s to 12 years ago. Um, There's been no further stats on this, but, you know, it's it's not a good trend. Um, And this call that Jesus gives us in Matthew 4, verse 19, he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers, I'll make you fish for people. Follow me and I'll make you fish for people. Uh, And so the call that Jesus has for each and every one of us is a call to follow him, is a call to, to go after everything that Jesus has for us. It's a call to experience his grace, to experience his love, but it's also a call to, to give, to go, to make disciples. They, they go together. The, the call that Jesus has is not just a call to get all the good stuff from him, but it's a call to, to receive that and pass that on to somebody else, to introduce people to that call for themselves and for then that person to, to do the same. So for the the discipling uh, method and, and mandate that Jesus gives us is a one of multiplication, one that grows. It doesn't. Uh, it's not just addition. It's not just people um, accidentally tripping over Jesus and going, "Oh, I might try this." But there's a real uh, method and strategy that Jesus gives, and it's quite simple. Um, even though, if, if you don't like maths, multiplication is quite simple in this in this way. Anyway, and so the command that Jesus gives us is to disciple. We, we won't read Matthew 28, uh, verse 18 to 20 this morning, but the, the Great Commission, the, the main uh, command that Jesus gives us is to disciple. Disciple. Go, teach, and baptize. Disciple. Um, he calls each and every person on this journey. The people that he called back uh, when, he, when he gave this Great Commission were just ordinary people. They didn't have anything extra special about them. The only extra special thing that was about them was that they had been with Jesus, that they had walked with Jesus, and they had somewhat become like Jesus. They were ordinary people, but given an extraordinary mission. Last week, uh, we looked at this idea that the Great Commission, when we unpack it, when we look at all the parts of the Great Commission, is actually an impossible task. It's actually far beyond anything we could ever do or hope to achieve. And it, it speaks right to the heart of the gospel that but you can't, but he can. And so the Great Commission is sandwiched between these two great promises that Jesus gives. The two great promises are that Jesus has the power and the authority to, to do this. He has the power and authority to send us on this mission. But he also gives us the presence of himself and, and through the Holy Spirit to accomplish the task. And so 
The promise that Jesus gives us is both one of power and one of his presence. And so if those promises are true and we believe that they are, then we can set out to achieve this impossible task, that with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And so with that, we're going to jump into today's scripture and I'm going to read from John 9 this morning. It's a bit of a chunk, but uh, I want to use this story as a bit of a, a launching pad to, um, to the idea that I want to share this morning. So John 9, verse 1 to 27, a story you may have heard before. It says this, As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, Why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the task assigned to us, assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and and then no one can work. But while I'm here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, it's very detailed, and spread the mud over the man's over the blind man's eyes. He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means sent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. His neighbours and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was, and others said, no, he just looks like the man. But the beggar kept saying, yes, I am the same one. It's like they had the conversation in front of him. Uh, They asked, who healed you? What happened? And he told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go wash, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed and now I can see. Where is he now? They asked. I don't know, he replied. Then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud. Naughty, naughty Jesus. And healed him. And the Pharisees asked the man all about it. So he told them. He put mud over my eyes, and when I washed it away, I could see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man Jesus is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath. Others said, But how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was a deep division of opinion among them. Then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, What's your opinion about this man who healed you? And the man replied, I think he must be a prophet. And then the Jewish uh, leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see. So they called in his parents. Oh my gosh, this story. They asked him, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? His parents replied, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He is old enough to speak for himself. His His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That's why they said, he is old enough, ask him. And maybe because he was old enough. And so for the second time they called the man who had been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man Jesus is a sinner. I don't know whether he is a sinner, the man replied, but I know this, I was blind and now I can see. It's like a broken record, isn't it? But what did he do? They asked. How did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed. I told you once. Didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, you speak so clearly and so plainly to us 
um, ordinary people. And, and God, we pray that you would help us to, to just see this for what it is and, and to understand what your spirit might be saying to us this morning and the challenge put before us. Help us to respond in obedience this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last night, um, Alana and I went to a birthday party, what we thought was a birthday party, um, and we turned up to the birthday party, and I won't say how old the person was, um, but we turned up, and it sort of looked um, like real fancy, like it was in someone's backyard, but they'd just, you know, gone the extra mile to, like, put fairy lights everywhere, tables out, fires, you know... Fancy food, fancy everything was like, they had like, I kid you not, I think 15 or 20 slow cookers all lined up on a table and they were tripping the power like nothing else, but uh, all with different sort of dishes and everyone had um, cooked and it was unreal. And then the, the, the person who was sort of organising or the MC for the night, for whatever better term, got up and said, surprise, they're getting married tonight. And we turned up to a surprise wedding. And now I've heard about this, but it was like, whoa, like it's like a movie. Where's the cameras? It's, this is cool. Uh, and it was a surprise wedding. And so sure enough, we walked around the corner and they turned on the lights and there's this beautiful arbor and uh, they had a celebrant there ready to go with um, all, the, all the greats. Oh, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not gonna, it, it was great. Um, and so it was great. And they got married and signed the documents and... It was all official and it was sort of like, whoa, did that just happen? Did we just see that? Um, what, a, what a cool event. And then the rest of the night was sort of like a reception, if you like. And, they had, and it sort of made a bit more sense of why it was so fancy because and, and, it was just this, this guy's birthday. And it was like, he's not really the sort of fancy guy that would do all this sort of stuff and, you know, um, have all the white tablecloths and fairy lights and, you know, Pinterest sort of wedding. Um, so it was great. And... Fantastic. And, you know, it got me thinking about this idea that I want to share this morning, that some people spend months, years, uh, their whole life planning their wedding, like budgeting, writing down what they're going to do, scrapping ideas, making a Pinterest board, making another Pinterest board, and and doing all these things, and uh, talking to people, booking things, uh, rehearsing the ceremony, rehearsing the songs. Uh, They do all their work out who's going to do what. They sort of have their own little rostering system and it, it, it sort of sounds like church, doesn't it? It's like we do all this talking and dreaming and visioning and budgeting and rostering and practicing and singing. And then at one point, you just got to do what you're talking about, don't you? You've just got to get married. I mean, it's all well and do, good to plan and dream and I'm not saying you shouldn't, if you're, if you're planning a wedding, keep planning, do it. Um, don't surprise everyone just get married if that's not what you want to do. That's not the point of what I'm talking about this morning. The point is, all that planning and dreaming is no good if you don't actually get married. And in the same way, at church, we can plan and dream and, and vision and sing and practice and roster and budget and do all this talk about making disciples, but if we don't actually do it, what's the point? What's the point? At some point, we've just got to go, all right, we've probably talked about this enough, let's, let's go. Let's try to do it. Let's try to do it. And so this morning I want to sort of share this simple idea that, that we have what it takes. We've done enough of the planning, the dreaming, the, the visioning, the practicing, the, the talking, all that we've done enough of. We've got all the tools we need in our tool belt that we'd ever need to, to go and make disciples. 
we've got more than enough at our disposal. And whether, you've, whether you think you know enough or, uh, or you don't, I'm telling you, you know enough. And I hope you can see already where this story is going and, and the scripture that we're going to use this morning. You know enough to go and make disciples. So firstly, if we're going to talk about going and making disciples and, and doing this, I just want to sh- share a couple of things what I, what I think discipleship is not about. Uh, that maybe have, has crept into our minds and our thinking. Discipleship is not about completing a course. It's not about doing a course. Uh, some people have begun to ask me, Brad, where's all this going? You've been talking about this and it seems a bit ambiguous and it seems a bit like, are you going to launch a discipleship course, school, like training thing? No. It's because discipleship is not a course. We don't need another course. We don't need another... Um, 10 steps on how to do this. Um, discipleship is not about completing a course. Um, it's not about being perfect either. Discipleship is not about getting to a point of perfection in your life, in your own walk, so that you can show everyone how perfect you are so they can somewhat try to be like you or so that you have some authority to speak into their life. Discipleship is not about being perfect. Discipleship is not about knowing more stuff. And I think this is perhaps the, the, the slight thing we've got wrong in, in our walk is that we've got this idea that discipleship is really just about getting into God's word and really unpacking every nuance and idea in scripture and, and knowing as much as we can about the Bible. And the more we know, the deeper the truths we know, the more discipled we are. But discipleship is not really about that either. Discipleship is not about knowing more stuff. I'm not saying you shouldn't read the Bible. I'm not saying you shouldn't know more about Scripture, but that's not really what discipleship is about. Think about the command that Jesus gave in Matthew 28. He said, go into all the world, uh, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to, what's the word? Obey. He doesn't say teach them to know. He says teach them to obey obey and so the big idea this morning is this that discipleship does discipleship does discipleship doesn't just equal knowing more but discipleship is about doing what we know and trying again and trying again and trying again so let's have a look at this uh, passage then I want to show you a video and then we'll um, finish we'll go and have some lunch all right John 9 so Firstly, why did this man get healed? I think this is important. Why would anyone get healed? Why would anyone come to Christ? Why would anyone want to go and make disciples? What's the point? The point is clearly outlined right at the start. It's not because of his, uh, in verse 3, it says, not because of his sins or his parents' uh, sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. Any uh, motivation we have to make disciples, it's really about God's glory. It's really about giving God his due glory and so that God can be seen. It's not so that Sail Baptist Church looks great. It's not so that we look great because I've got another notch on my belt and I've got another disciple that I can spruik about. It's so that God gets the glory. It's so a life could be transformed and someone could say, wow, isn't God amazing? Isn't God great? I want to follow that God. Because if it's about us getting the glory or about us looking good, people aren't going to look at us and go, oh, I want to be like you. They want to see something greater than that. They need something greater. And so it's really about God's glory and God's goodness um, 
And, and in fact, it would be right to say that any reason uh, to not make disciples is actually a selfish one. It denies God his glory. Any reason we have to not go and make disciples is something that uh, we take on ourselves and say, well, I don't want to give God all the glory he deserves. When we, when we go out and, and follow his commands and do what he's called us to do, God gets the glory. We're a part of that process. Then I love that Jesus, in verse 6, it says, he spits on the ground, made, makes mud with his saliva and spreads the mud over the blind man's eyes. It's like, it, it repeats this idea that uh, we talked about last week, that Jesus just used whatever he had in front of him. Last week we talked about how Jesus just used the boats of the disciples and he just said, all right, I'm just going to use the boats to preach the gospel. And, and now he's like, I mean, he's really scraping the bottom of the barrel. Like, what have I got? Oh, I suppose this dirt will do. <laughs> like, he just uses whatever he can to, like, basic, simple ideas to bring transformation and to, to speak into this man's life. This uh, simple idea of rubbing on his eyes, where, where he was blind, where his uh, felt need was, to demonstrate his goodness, to demonstrate his glory, that he used whatever it was that he has. He didn't use some unrelated uh, substance or he didn't speak in some way that wasn't relatable to this man. He just spoke to him where he was at, used the things that were going on in his own world to demonstrate uh, what he was trying to get this man to. And then what happens in verse 8 and 9, it says, his neighbours and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was and others said, no, he just looks like him. And again, this speaks to the heart of the Great Commission that we are teach to obey, that there should be some change noticeable in this disciple-making business. The disciple-making business is not just about getting alongside someone and, and filling them full of knowledge so they just look the same but they know more stuff. It's, it's getting alongside someone so they might know more stuff but they have a lifestyle change, that their life looks different so that people walk past and go, oh, you sort of look like someone... I used to know. I think someone wrote a song about that. Part of our challenge, I think, is to disciple people in a way that change occurs in their life. That obedience to the commands of Jesus are central to what we talk about. And they're not just like, oh, this is a good idea, and just hope that they sort of do it. But obedience is sort of centred around our conversations. That this is what Jesus says, so let's do that. Let's just not know about what we should do, but let's do it. And let's do it together. I'll try, you try, then we'll see what happens. If we fail, that's okay. God's got enough grace for that. But let's try to do it. And if we fail, let's try again. Because that's what Jesus tells us to do. So let's try to do it again. Discipleship does. And then what happens in verse 10 and 11, they asked, they begin this, this line of questioning. I love how many questions they ask this guy. That's like he knows everything because he had an experience with Jesus. Verse 10 and 11, they asked him, who healed you? What happened? And he told them, the man they called Jesus made mud, spread over my eyes and told me to go to the pool of Siloam and washed myself, and so I went and washed, and now I can see. So this guy had literally just seen and experienced Jesus, and, and in, 
And for the first time in his life, he's telling his testimony to these guys. This is his testimony. He's telling his testimony in probably like the minutes or hours after he's experienced Jesus for the very first time. His testimony is pretty simple. It could be told in 15 seconds or less. Probably five seconds if he just got it out fast. Jesus spat in the ground, made some mud, rubbed in his eyes, washed in the pool. Voila, now I can see. That was his testimony. That's all he could say. And you know what? You and I have testimonies that might not involve mud, might not involve saliva, and maybe if they do, I mean, I'd love to hear it. But they are probably just simple stories. They are probably just simple ideas. Like, I used to be lonely, and now i found a friend in Jesus. Or I used to just have no purpose in life, and now i found a purpose. I used to have no hope, and now I have hope. Whatever it is in your life that has changed, whatever it is in your story that has changed because you met Jesus, that's your testimony. And you don't need to write a book about it. You don't need to be able to talk about it for 10 minutes. If you've got something that has changed in your life because you met Jesus, you have a testimony. And if you've met Jesus, something has obviously changed. And so you've got a testimony. And you could probably tell it in five seconds or less. You don't need anything more than that. You have a story of how you came to follow Jesus. You might just need to figure out what it is. But chances are, if uh, someone just asked you, what has happened since you experienced Jesus? You could say it. And that's all you need. That's all this guy had. And that was his testimony. That was his story. And that's what he told those around him. And then the questions for this guy keep on coming. The questions like, where is he? And he says, I don't know. But how can an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? What's your opinion about this man who healed you? I think, I love this. He just says, I think he's a prophet. So I don't know who he is. Maybe he's a prophet. And then they, if that's not enough, they question his parents. Like, is this your son? Who? Well, why was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? And then verse 24, so the, for the second time they called in the man who had been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know that this man Jesus is a sinner. I don't know whether he's a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind and now I can see. But what did he do, they asked. How did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it? Again, oh, he just turns the questions back on them. Do you want to become a disciple too? It's like, he's preaching the gospel right to him. He's saying, you want to come down to the altar? You want to give your life to Jesus too? Like, this is the moment. I just did it. You can do it too. I mean, what a challenge for us that this guy is just literally hours into his walk with Jesus and he's asking this question to these Pharisees. Like, do you want to become a disciple too? To the religious leaders, those who know so much more than him. Here is he. Do you want to become a disciple too? I don't know. What happened? I don't know who he is. I don't know all these answers to all the questions that you're asking me. All I know is what I experienced. All I know is that I met Jesus. I was blind, but now I can see. That's all I know. I don't know if he's a sinner. I mean, this is theology 101. Is Jesus a sinner? I mean, I think probably all of us, most of us would be able to answer that question really confidently. No, Jesus was not a sinner. I can show you here, 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 here in the Bible. That's what I mean. We know enough. This man didn't even know if Jesus was a sinner. Didn't even know if Jesus was a prophet or if he was God or who this guy was. I mean, he had no theology at all, but he knew enough to share his story and to tell people about Jesus and what he experienced. 
And for some of us, this is our greatest fear of going and making disciples, the questions that will come, the questions that people might ask us. What about this? What about that? What would you say about this? What does the Bible say about this? And you know what I would say? Is that you just need to answer honestly. If you don't know, you don't know. You don't need to know the answers. You can say, I don't know. How about we try to find the answer together? Why don't we read the Bible and try to figure it out? You know what? I think so many of us have this fear that we need to be able to defend God and defend the Bible. Like it's our job to defend God and it's our job to defend the Bible. Like God's not big enough to defend himself. You know, if this Bible is true, if God is real, if Jesus died on the cross and rose again, we have nothing to fear. We have no reason to fear saying to someone, let's just figure out what's true. I might be wrong. If you've got an idea about that, I'm happy to explore it with you. I'm happy to be proven wrong. I'm happy for you to show me what you know. Tell me your experience. We don't need to know all the answers. We just need to give honest ones. It's, we need to just say what we know, what we've experienced. But the real point here is that we don't need to know any more than we do right now to obey the command to make disciples. You know enough. I think we just need greater courage and greater persistence at doing what we've called, been called to do. And I think the other challenge for us is that, like I said two weeks ago, we've, a lot of us have never seen discipleship done. A lot of us have never experienced it for ourselves. We've never had someone de- sit down one-on-one with us and, and walk us through what the Bible says and how to obey it. And so the whole concept of making disciples seems a little bit foreign to us. It seems like I know about it. I know that what we should do, but I've never seen it done, and so I'm a bit hesitant to, to give it a go. I want to show you a video that um, I've stolen this idea and this, um, this illustration directly from Dale Stevenson. And if you know who that is, he's a phenomenal preacher in Melbourne. Um, and so I want to show you this video as an illustration of a way that what we know is enough. But it's about putting those things that we know into practice. So thanks, Michael. Let's watch that video. Welcome back to Smarter Every Day. You've heard people say it's just like riding a bike, meaning it's really easy and you can't forget how to do it, right? But I did something. I did something that damaged my mind. It happened on the streets of Amsterdam, and and I got really scared, honestly. I I can't ride a bike like you can anymore. Before I show you the video of what happened, I I need to tell you the backstory. Like many six-year-olds with a MacGyver mullet, I learned how to ride a bike when I was really young. I had learned a life skill and I was really proud of it. Everything changed though when my friend Barney called me 25 years later. Where I work, the welders are geniuses and they like to play jokes on the engineers. He had a challenge for me. He had built a special bicycle and he wanted me to try to ride it. He had only changed one thing. When you turn the handlebar to the left, the wheel goes to the right. When you turn it to the right, the wheel goes to the left. I thought this would be easy, so I hopped on the bike, ready to demonstrate how quickly I could conquer this. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Destin Salem. First attempt riding the bicycle. All right. So, the faster I go, the better. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I sure. couldn't do it. You can see that I'm laughing, but I'm actually really frustrated. In this moment, I had a really deep revelation. My thinking was in a rut. This bike revealed a very deep truth to me. I had the knowledge of how to operate the bike, but I did not have the understanding. 
Therefore, knowledge is not understanding. Look, I know what you're probably thinking. Destin's probably just an uncoordinated engineer and can't do it. But that's not the case at all. The algorithm that's associated with riding a bike in your brain is just that complicated. Think about it. Downwards force on the pedals, leaning your whole body, pulling and pushing the handlebars, gyroscopic precession in the wheels. Every single force is part of this algorithm. And if you change any one part, it affects the entire control system. I do not make definitive statements that often, but I'm telling you right now, you cannot ride this bicycle. You might think you can, but you can't. I know this because I'm often asked to speak at universities and conferences and I take the bike with me. It's always the same. People think they're gonna try some trick or they're just gonna power through it. It doesn't work. Your brain cannot handle this. For instance, this guy. I offered him $200 just to ride this bike 10 feet across the stage. Everybody thought he could do it. No, 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 you didn't understand, you didn't understand. So, this way. All right, I'm sick. All right, so, uh, whatever you're in. Go ahead, go ahead. No, no, you have to keep your feet on. Dude, all right, here we go. Just give it a Wait, wait, wait. Like, you gotta start rolling at least. Feet on the pedal. Go. <laughs> Go right off. <laughs> Just keep your feet on the pedals. Tails on. Yeah, come on. <laughs> Alright, one more time, one more time. Once you have a rigid way of thinking in your head, sometimes you cannot change that, even if you want to. So here's what I did. It was a personal challenge. I stayed out here in this driveway and I practiced about five minutes every day. My neighbors made fun of me. I had many wrecks, but after eight months, this happened. One day I couldn't ride the bike and the next day I could. It was like I could feel some kind of pathway in my brain that was now unlocked. It was really weird though. It's like there's this trail in my brain, but if I wasn't paying close enough attention to it, my brain would easily lose that neural path and jump back onto the old road it was more familiar with. Any small distractions at all, like a cell phone ringing in my pocket, would instantly throw my brain back to the old control algorithm and I would wreck. But at least I could ride it. My son is the closest person to me genetically, and he's been riding a normal bike for three years. That's over half his life. I wanted to know how long it would take him to learn how to ride a backwards bike, so I told him if he learned how to ride a backwards bike, he could go with me to Australia and meet a real astronaut. Are you going to give up? No. Go ahead. This is how it starts. Look at this. This is such a big deal. Get up. You got it. Did you see his brain get it? So he in, how many weeks have we been doing this? Two weeks? In two weeks, he did something that took me eight months to do, which demonstrates that a child has more neuroplasticity, am I even saying that right, than an adult. It's clear from this experiment that children have a much more plastic brain than adults. That's why the best time to learn a language is when you're a young child. All right, today's bike log. I can ride smooth, I can ride fast. I'm thinking the experiment is over. Okay, now I'm in Amsterdam, a city that has more bicycles than people. The question is, can I ride a normal bike now? I mean, I've spent all this time unlearning how to ride a bike. If I go back and try to ride a normal one, will my brain mess up? So I've tweeted a Smarter Everyday Meetup, if you will, and I'm gonna see if somebody brings a bicycle and I'm gonna try to ride a normal bike. 
It's backwards. It's backwards. This was one of the most frustrating moments of my life. I had ridden a normal bike since I was six, but in this moment, I couldn't do it anymore. I had set out to prove that I could free my brain from a cognitive bias. But at this point, I'm pretty sure that all I proved is that I could only redesignate that bias. So what you're not seeing is just a group of people here looking at me, looking at the strange American that can't ride a bike because they think I'm dumb. But I'm actually two levels deep into this because I've learned and unlearned. All right. After 20 minutes of making a fool out of myself, suddenly my brain clicked back into the old algorithm. I can't explain it, but it happened in a very specific moment. <laughs> I got it, I got it, I got it. I'm back. Oh, it clicked, it clicked. hold it, it clicked. I got it, I got it. Okay, there it is. There was the moment. Okay, I can ride a bike. I tried to explain this to the people around me and they just didn't get it. They thought I was faking the previous 20 minutes and I couldn't get anybody to believe me. That looked like I faked that, didn't it? Yeah. Just a fake. You think I'm faking. You don't believe me. That's so weird to like, You think I'm lying, don't you? I'm not lying. I felt like the only person on the planet who had ever unlearned how to ride a bike and I couldn't articulate it to anyone because everybody just knew that you can't forget how to ride a bike. So I learned three things from this experiment. I learned that welders are often smarter than engineers. I learned that knowledge does not equal understanding. And I learned that truth is truth, no matter what I think about it. So be very careful how you interpret things because you're looking at the world with a bias, whether you think you are or not. I'm Destin, you're getting smarter every day. Have a good one. Okay, if you want to support Smarter Every Day, you can download a free audio book at audible.com smarter. I recommend Commander Hadfield's book, which is an astro... That wasn't a paid advertisement, but you can check him out. So isn't that an amazing sort of illustration of how our brains are wired and how we've learnt uh, how to ride the bike, if you like, of making disciples in our Christian walk? And for some of us, what we read in the scriptures and the challenge put before us is like, yeah, it's different to what I've experienced, but I, I can see that it's what we should do. And I think the challenge for us is to try and do what we maybe have never tried to do, that we've only known before. And it might feel awkward and, it might, and we might crash and it might take us months or years to get into the habit of doing it. But uh, my challenge and my um, hope for us as a church is that we would go on that journey of learning how to do it together. That we'd sort of share our awkward and challenging stories of like, I tried this and it didn't work and I made a fool of myself here and this person, you know, I was reading the Bible with them and then this happened and... I didn't know what to say. And, and then, but we'll also hear stories of people that said, you know what, this person is following Jesus now and, and they're telling their friends about Jesus and they're making disciples themselves. Wouldn't it be cool to see people uh, making disciples in a way that those disciples make disciples and make disciples and there's this, this generational influence of people who catch the, the story of following Jesus and um, go on to their spheres of influence and do the same. And so my encouragement this morning is discipleship does. What you know, you try to do. What you know, you try to do. And you try, and then you try it again. Let's try something we haven't tried before. And then if it fails, not just give up and go, well, it didn't work, so I suppose discipleship's not really my thing. But we just get back on that bike and, and try it again. And we try it again, and we try it again. Uh, I know that's the story that I want to have in my life is of trying to make disciples, of trying to walk alongside people, not just in this environment. I mean, this is easy 
in terms of getting up and preaching, you might think, oh, that's hard, Brad. But, I mean, it's, it's easy in the sense of, you know, I don't get any feedback in terms of, like, I'm not having, and I'm not going to ever do this probably, say, questions, please, from the floor. It's like, who knows what you might ask me? I won't know the answer. Um, but just this idea of, of one-on-one, you know, with someone who's not yet a follower of Jesus, sitting down with them, discovering what Jesus says and wrestling with the scriptures together, but with a real bias towards obedience, a real bias towards doing what we see we're asked to do, trying it and then sharing the story of, well, it worked, it didn't work, or let's try it again, let's try something different. Life on life, conversation after conversation, Bible-centered, command, commands of Jesus-focused, doing what he's called us to do. What you do know about Jesus' commands, uh, what do you know about Jesus' commands that you are not currently doing? Do that. What do you know about the Bible that you're not currently putting into practice in your own life? Do that. Start there. And encourage people around you to do the same. And this is, I think, the basic tool of how we do discipleship, of how we do this, is we say, what do we know about Jesus? What do we know about the Bible? that we're not currently doing in our life, let's try to do that. And if we fail, let's try it again. You don't need to know any more than you do right now to go and disciple someone. You know enough. You have enough in your tool belt to go and make disciples. You've got God's word. If you don't, you can get, get it on your phone. You can get it online. You can get, a, get one from the, the bookshop. We've got ones there we can give away. Uh, so you have got the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so you have all you need to do this. We have all we need to do this. So my encouragement, my challenge and my hope and dream is that we will go and do it. We'd stop talking about it all the time and we'd just go and do it and we'd share stories of how it works and what happens. I'm going to invite the the band to come back up and we're going to close as we sing one last little bridge. But I I really um, challenge you, if you're keen to to maybe take this step of faith, of of doing something that you know you should be doing but you, you haven't done it, to, to really, in these next few minutes as we close the service, to make this declaration to God, you know, call me out deeper than I am before. Help me to obey you in a way that I haven't before. If you ask me to do something, I'm just going to try to do it, even if I am scared, even if I think I can't do it. I'm going to give it a go. And then I'm going to keep giving it a go, because it's what you've called me to do. So can we stand? Can we pray? Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you call us, that you know us, that you love us. And God, that you are present with us in every moment of our life. And God, I pray that together we might learn how to go and make disciples in a a real tangible way, that we would see lives transformed, that we would see people come to follow you and they in themselves would go and make disciples within minutes of deciding to follow you. God, help us to step out in obedience. Help us to have the courage and the persistence you call us to, to do what you've called us to do. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence in our life and for the empowerment you give us to do what you've called us to. We pray this in Jesus' name.